This is History 2311, Week 7A, The U.S. and World War II. to right now is called American Patrol, performed by Glenn Miller's orchestra in 1942. Glenn Miller was the best-selling recording artist in the world from 1939 through 1942. He was one of the big band leaders in the big band era, the swing era. There are a lot of songs I could have picked to represent music of the United States during the Second World War. Some, some songs that are better known today. In fact, there are a lot of better known Glenn Miller songs I could have picked. Glenn Miller actually had more number one records than Elvis Presley or the Beatles. And uh, songs of his band like In the Mood or Chattanooga Choo Choo are routinely used in movies and television today to instantly evoke the era of the 1940s of the Second World War. The reason I picked American Patrol is that it was actually originally a 19th century military march, like the John Philip Sousa march I played back in uh, week two or three or whatever it was. And it incorporates melodies from a number of classic patriotic songs like Yankee Doodle or Dixie, the Southern Anthem. But Miller's band plays them all with a swing beat. And Miller and his band recorded this swing version of American Patrol in 1942, right before Glenn Miller volunteered to join the army. And in joining the army, Miller kind of followed in John Philip Sousa's footsteps. He put together uh, a big 50-piece Army Air Force band and gave hundreds of performances for U.S. troops, mostly in England. In December 1944, Glenn Miller was killed in action when his plane uh, was either shot down or maybe just crashed over the English Channel. So all that makes him an appropriate choice to soundtrack today's lecture. Okay, the Second World War, uh, Canadians and Brits typically call it the Second World War, Americans typically call it World War II, remains the largest, deadliest conflict in all of human history, uh, directly involving more than 100 million people from over 30 countries. How on earth are we going to tell that story in 45 minutes? When we talked about the Great War, World War I, a few weeks ago, I avoided getting into the military history of the war. I didn't talk much about actual strategies and tactics. Today, I do want to talk a little bit about military history with the caveat that this is only a short and superficial discussion of something that people spend lifetimes studying. And also the caveat that this course is a U.S. history course. So I'm going to give a U.S.-centric narrative of the war. I'm not going to talk much about Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about the Eastern Front. I'm not going to talk about the Holocaust, such a grave and awful subject. It just wouldn't be appropriate to rush through it in what is already a crowded lecture. 
I'm also not going to say much about the home front in, in America, about war mobilization or women's factory work or Japanese American internment or the double V campaign of black soldiers. All of these are great topics. And if you're interested, your textbook touches on all of them. And of course, there's a world of reading beyond that. But if you are going to spend one hour in a U.S. history course on military history, on tanks and bombs and guns, then this is the day to do it. I'm not going to drill right down into individual battles, but I will try to talk about the way the United States waged its war or its part of the war. And my overarching argument is that World War II produced an American way of war, a way of waging war or thinking about war that was distinct from, say, the German way of war or the Russian way of war or even the British way of war. It was a way of leveraging America's particular strengths and resources to win wars, which has, I would argue, shaped U.S. military strategy and political strategy ever since. So let's begin with the coming of the war. Americans in the 1930s were preoccupied by the economic crisis of the Great Depression, and they weren't paying close attention to ominous developments in Europe and Asia that brought the world to war. But the economic crisis of the 1930s was a global crisis, and it fueled the rise of fascist and militarist governments around the world and a breakdown in international relations. In 1931, the Japanese army invaded Manchuria in northern China. This invasion was actually not authorized by the civilian government of Japan. It was part of a gradual coup by the Japanese military in these years. And when the Japanese prime minister tried to rein in his military, he was assassinated by a group of Navy officers. In 1935, Italy, under uh, the fascist leader Benito Mussolini, who had come to power in the 20s, invaded and conquered Ethiopia in open defiance of the League of Nations. In 1936, General Francisco Franco in Spain led a fascist uprising against the left-leaning Spanish Republic. And of course, the 1930s saw the rise to power of Adolf Hitler in Germany and the Nazi program of aggressive military expansion and the persecution, imprisonment, and eventually the mass murder of Germany's Jews. So across Europe and Asia in the 1930s, fascism was on the rise and the fascists longed for war. In 1938, Germany annexed Austria and the Sudetenland, which was a ethnically German part of Czechoslovakia. And Germany soon took over the rest of Czechoslovakia. In August of 1939, Hitler signed a non-aggression pact with Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union. And then with Stalin's pledge not to interfere, Germany invaded Poland. Britain and France, who had pledged to protect Poland, declared war on Germany. And the battle that Hitler had been planning for, really dreaming of since 1919, had begun. But in the United States in 1939, much like in 1914, many Americans wanted no part of Europe's war. Hitler and the Nazis had real admirers in America, people like Henry Ford, the architect of Fordism, uh, the modern consumer economy that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. People like Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator who made the first solo flight across the Atlantic. They were admirers of the Nazis. They had close ties or sympathies with Nazi Germany, and they helped to organize uh, the America First movement. There's that term again, America First, to keep the United States out of the war. 
But you didn't have to be a Nazi sympathizer or an anti-Semite, which Henry Ford was, to want to avoid war. The great majority of Americans in the 1930s had decided that involvement in the Great War, the First World War, had been a mistake. Um, that maybe it had made bankers and arms dealers rich, but that no other good that they could see had come out of it. And it was a desire to avoid conflicts like that that led Congress in the 1930s to pass a series of neutrality acts that banned direct aid or any sale of arms to countries at war. And the neutrality acts, among other things, prevented Roosevelt from helping the leftist or democratic side of the Spanish Civil War. But one American who did want to get involved in the European war was President Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt was an internationalist and a firm admirer of Britain, and he regarded Hitler as a dangerous gangster. And bit by bit, Roosevelt maneuvered his country from neutrality towards helping Britain in the war. This is not really a story like Woodrow Wilson wrestling with his conscience and being reluctantly pulled into war. Roosevelt knew where he stood and set out to maneuver his country into the fight. In 1940, Roosevelt broke with long tradition and ran for an unprecedented third term as president. He said the international situation was too dangerous for him to leave office at that time. In the 1940 election, he repeatedly promised American boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. But this was, you know, kind of typical Roosevelt sneakiness because in the back of his mind, he was thinking if the U.S. is attacked or declared war, then it would no longer be a, quote, foreign war. And then in December 1940, right after his reelection, but not before, Roosevelt declared the United States must become the great arsenal of democracy. That is, it wasn't joining the war, but it was going to arm and equip Britain fighting against the Nazi Germany. And over the next several months, Roosevelt cajoled and pressured and maneuvered Congress, moving it from its original position, which was, as the Neutrality Act said, no selling arms to countries at war, to something called cash and carry, which was a deal where the United States could sell weapons, but the buyers had to pay in cash and transport the arms themselves to something called Lend-Lease, where the United States would lend war material to Britain and expect them to pay back later. And in March 1941, Congress passed Roosevelt's Lend-Lease Bill, along with $7 billion in aid for Britain. So at this point, the United States could not be called neutral in the fight. They were lending weapons to Britain, but they were still not actively in the war. And then in June of 1941, Hitler broke his non-aggression pact with Stalin and Germany invaded the Soviet Union. The timing here was very fateful in terms of Roosevelt's maneuvering because it was one thing for Roosevelt to get the Lend-Lease Act passed when it meant aiding Britain. But if Congress had known that Lend-Lease also was going to mean aiding the Soviet Union, it would have been much harder to get this bill passed. But the bill was passed back in March. So two days after the German invasion of the Soviet Union, Roosevelt announced that the United States was going to support the Soviets with war materials as well. This debate did not become moot, but it was completely transformed on December 7th, 1941, when Japanese planes launched from aircraft carriers bombed the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, 
the first attack on American soil by a foreign power since 1812. In just a few hours, 2,400 American servicemen were killed, 187 aircraft and 18 ships were destroyed, including eight valuable and hard to replace battleships. I'll say a bit more about what the Japanese were thinking uh, in a moment, but for now, suffice to say that the attack on Pearl Harbor was a stunning blow but really a strategic failure. Three American aircraft carriers just happened to be out of port and escaped damage. The Japanese also failed to destroy the island's repair facilities or oil reserves. But most important of all, the attack on Pearl Harbor united the American people and ended the debate between isolation and intervention and brought the United States into the war, really into both wars, a war in the Pacific with Japan and the war in Europe against Germany. Now, military history is actually a good illustration of something I tried to talk about last week uh, when discussing the Great Depression and Great Migration, but I don't think I did a very good job of explaining it. That is that a key part of thinking historically is thinking at different scales, zooming in to individual stories and zooming out to see the big picture. And military theorists and strategists do the same thing. In fact, they have names for the different scales. They talk about the difference between grand strategy, operational strategy, tactics, and logistics. And the difference between these is a difference of scale. Grand strategy is big picture, geopolitical, long view. Why are we at war? Who are our allies? What is our big purpose here? Operational strategy is kind of the next level down. Where should our armies be deployed? What targets will we bomb? When and at what point will the invasion begin? Tactics is another level down from that. How troops are deployed to execute the strategy. And then logistics is all about making sure that your troops and supplies are where they're supposed to be. It's about supplying your soldiers with food and ammunition. And the art of war is to synthesize all of these levels, to kind of operate simultaneously at all of these scales. And metaphorically, that's what I think a good historian does, is to think at all of these scales simultaneously. So when I say in this lecture that World War II produced an American way of war, I'm talking about a kind of strategic synthesis, a way that grand strategy shaped operational strategy, which shaped tactics and logistics and vice versa. And that's what I want to track as we sketch the war in Europe and the war in the Pacific. The terrifying speed of the German advance in the early years of the war was Nazi Germany's own synthesis of strategy, tactics and technology. Remember that the First World War had been a brutal slog with armies trapped in their trenches, basically paralyzed, a war of attrition, where it was just about who starved or gave up first. In the First World War, technology had favored defense over offense. But in the Second World War, weapons that had not existed in World War I or barely existed, like the tank, like fighter airplanes and bomber airplanes, like higher powered artillery, and also radio to coordinate these attacks, swung the pendulum firmly back towards offense and a rapid kind of offense at that. The German strategy of Blitzkrieg or lightning war involved concentrating a whole lot of offensive firepower in one spot, artillery, bombers, tanks, mechanized infantry, punching through the enemy lines and then advancing very rapidly. 
Nazi Germany's whole strategy was to avoid a protracted war of production, to conquer a lot of territory as quickly as possible, and then kind of force the world to accept German conquest as a fait accompli. This was an effective strategy for a time, but it was a purely offensive one. It required rapid victories, rapid victories, or better yet, rapid surrender. You seize your opponent's supplies and you move on. And for the first few years of the war, this worked well as German tanks rolled across Poland, across France, across Belgium, and far into Russia. The Germans uh, appeared in invincible, appeared undefeated. And you see on this map, the kind of orange is Germany and the Axis powers at the start of the war. And the sort of pinkish area is everywhere they conquered by 1943. But what the rapid German advance concealed was that it only really worked while Germany was advancing. The Nazis were not really supplied or logistically prepared for a long protracted war. Classic example of this is that when they invaded the Soviet Union in the summer of 1941, at least the story is that the German troops had no winter uniforms. Their whole strategy depended on winning before winter came, on, on a rapid advance that would break the enemy's will. But if there's one thing the Russians had going for them, it was an iron will. And at the Battle of Stalingrad, the Russians dug in and held the line at a truly obscene cost in human lives. The Battle of Stalingrad lasted something like five months in which 800,000 Germans and 1.2 million Russians were killed. They fought building to building until the city was reduced to rubble. They ran out of food, they ate rats. They ran out of ammo and they fought hand to hand. It would still take years to beat the Germans back as the Nazis directed all production toward military ends, literally starving the civilian economy. But this, and you can see Stalingrad at the eastern edge of this map, was the outer limit of the German advance, the point at which the Nazis were turned back and their long, slow defeat began. Now you probably know that the most terrible fighting in Europe of the war took place on the Eastern Front as the Russians slowly pushed back the German invasion. Of 13 million Germans who were killed in the war, something like 10 million died on the, on the Russian front and an estimated 20 million Russians, quite possibly more, died in the fighting along with millions of Poles, Romanians, Hungarians, and so on. As the Russian people fought and bled and died, Stalin was very impatient for Britain and the United States to invade from the West and draw German forces away from the Eastern Front. At first, Roosevelt promised Stalin that American troops would cross the English Channel before the year 1942 was over. But after the disastrous landing at Dieppe in August 1942, this was sort of a test invasion in which a largely Canadian force tried to land at the German occupied port of Dieppe. And of the 6,000 men who made it ashore, something like 3,600 were killed or captured. Seeing how hard it was going to be to land in fortified France, uh, the United States and Britain chose to postpone the big invasion, instead kind of nipping at the periphery of the Axis by invading Northern Africa in 1942 and later the Southern tip of Italy. The other thing the Western Allies did was to bomb German-occupied Europe from the air. In early 1942, the US Air Force joined the British Royal Air Force in Southern England and began bombing German targets in France. And as the range of their bombers increased, began bombing Germany itself. 
At first, they only dropped bombs on military targets, but gradually they moved to what were called strategic targets, that is, industrial sites, factories, transportation hubs, with the goal of destroying Germany's industrial capabilities. Now, of course, factories are usually in cities. So when you move from military to strategic bombing, you are accepting the inevitability of bombing some civilians. And at the start of the war, the United States had pledged not to kill civilians, but as the fight went on, this resolution eroded. Over time, the Allies abandoned what was called precision bombing in favor of saturation bombing. At first, their bombing raids largely took place in the daytime when they could be more accurate about hitting precise targets. But in the daytime, it's much easier to shoot uh, bombers down. So as the war went on, more and more air raids took place at night. And as you can imagine, when you bomb at night, your targeting is not nearly so precise. So, so there's more likelihood of killing civilians. But American and British bombers were more likely to come back from these raids, more likely to survive. They also dropped their bombs from higher and higher altitudes, again, sacrificing accuracy, sacrificing precision in order to protect American and British lives. And eventually they adopted incendiary bombs, firebombing, bombs that set fires on the cities below, a tactic of the Germans that the Allies had regarded as horrific at the start of the war. By the end of the war, they had embraced it too. And the Allied firebombing of cities like Dresden, Germany, and Tokyo, Japan, were almost as destructive as the atomic bomb. And in this evolution, we can see the emergence of the Allies strategic synthesis and what has come to be a characteristically American way of war. In World War II and since, American war tactics have always leveraged science and technology and the productive power of the US economy to fight war while preserving American lives. And air power, or dropping bombs from above, is the classic expression of that strategy. If the historical foundation of the British Empire was the British Navy, and if Russia's great strength over the years uh, was the massive size of its army, the cornerstone of American strength in the 20th century, or at least from World War II on, has been its air force. I mean, not to take anything away from the US Army or Navy or Marine Corps, but since World War II, the power the United States has had that almost nobody else has had is the ability to take control of the sky over any place on earth at any time. And what makes the United States the great air power is its great productive power. This 3D graph is a little hard to read, but the, the point I hope is clear that American production of aircraft soon dwarfed every other country in the world. They made something like 50,000 planes in 1942 and 100,000 planes in 1944. And I can't think of a conflict since 1945 in which the American command of the air has been seriously challenged. If I'm missing something, uh, some military buff in the class is sure to tell me, but I can't think of one. And this diagram from the uh, US Strategic Bombing Survey in 1945 is an illuminating illustration of, of the philosophy of strategic bombing. And you can sort of see how the thinking shifts. At first you say, we're only going to bomb military bases, genuine military targets. We won't drop bombs on civilians. Then you open it up to factories, you know, which are in, indirectly part of the war machine. Gradually you embrace the idea that you are not dropping bombs on tanks and factories, but you are 
dropping bombs to destroy your enemy's will to resist, to destroy their belief in victory, their confidence in their leaders, to destroy their morale. And at that point, you can drop a bomb on anything. The Allies would drop nearly a million tons of bombs on German-occupied Europe before the war was over. It's not clear if they destroyed German morale, but they did kill half a million German civilians, and in this way brought Nazi Germany to its knees. Meanwhile, in the Pacific, the war in the Pacific against Japan was different than the war uh, against Germany, but the strategic approaches were not completely unrelated. The Japanese strategy at the start of the war was not unlike the Nazi blitzkrieg. Despite American fears, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was not a prelude to invading Hawaii, and certainly not a prelude to invading the continental United States. The event that we know as Pearl Harbor was actually an all-out lightning strike on U.S. and British holdings throughout the Pacific. On December 7, 1941, over the space of about nine hours, the Japanese bombed Hawaii. They also bombed other American colonial possessions, the Philippines, Guam, Midway Island, Wake Island, and British possessions like Hong Kong and Singapore, and they invaded Thailand. The fact that we remember this massive multi-pronged attack as the attack on Pearl Harbor says something about how Roosevelt framed the war and sold it to American people. He didn't want to sell the war as a defense of empire, as a defense of American and British colonial possessions across the Pacific in the Philippines and Guam. So he made it all about the naval base at Pearl Harbor. Now, this is not to say that the Japanese were liberating the people of the Pacific. The Japanese just wanted their own empire. They wanted to secure a kind of puppet state in China and to conquer Southeast Asia, to take over what had been the Dutch and French and British colonial possessions in Indochina and the East Indies. And Japan's military planners had convinced themselves that if they struck a decisive blow against U.S. naval power, the United States would make peace and would not prevent the Japanese conquest of Southeast Asia. This proved to be a terrible miscalculation, but you know, nobody said fascists were smart. So in the first months of the war, Japan advanced very rapidly, much as Germany had done. By February 1942, the Japanese occupied into China, in Burma and Siam, what's now, what's now Myanmar and Thailand, and the Dutch East Indies. The Japanese landed in the Philippines in December 1941, which was still under U.S. control after the Spanish-American War. And after a few months of fighting, American forces there under Douglas MacArthur surrendered in April 1942, the largest surrender in U.S. military history. MacArthur fled and the Japanese captured and imprisoned something like 80,000 American and Filipino troops. By April 1942, the Japanese controlled half the Pacific Ocean, but like Hitler's Germany, their strategy relied on rapid attack and surrender. In May 1942, US and Australian forces fought the Japanese to a kind of a draw in the Battle of the Coral Sea and saved Port Moresby on the south coast of New Guinea. This was the first time the Allies had stopped the Japanese. And so began what ended up being three years of island hopping, ferocious fighting for each little island in the South Pacific that was big enough to build an airstrip or fuel a ship. Midway, Guadalcanal, Guam, Iwo Jima, inching their way back towards Japan. If we zoom all the way out to the big picture geopolitical level of the war, that means talking about the so-called big three. 
The big three were the three Allied leaders, President Roosevelt, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, and the Soviet Premier Joseph Stalin. Roosevelt met Stalin for the first time in November 1943 at a conference in Tehran, Iran. This was the first meeting of the big three. There were a few earlier conferences just of Roosevelt and Churchill, but this was the first time the three men had met together. Those of you who are doing the World War II topic for the essay assignment, the second written assignment for this class, one of the options involves the Tehran and Yalta conferences. And so if you do that option, you will be reading transcripts of these meetings. And I hope that you can read the dynamic that was going on there. As I said, Stalin was impatient for a major invasion across the English Channel. But Roosevelt and Churchill were reluctant to take that step until they were sure that Germany could be defeated, until they were sure they would win. And even though they both pledged loyalty and support and drank each other's health and all sorts of toasts, everyone was paranoid that one of the other guys was going to betray him. Stalin feared that the Western allies would negotiate their own separate peace with Germany and let Germany destroy Russia while Roosevelt worried that the reverse would happen, that the Soviets would surrender to Germany and drop out of the fight, much as the Bolsheviks had in the First World War. And that's what makes those documents from Tehran and Yalta interesting, but also challenging if you end up doing that assignment, is there's what they say on the surface, and then there's all the stuff that's going on underneath. The long-deferred invasion did finally come in June 1944. Today, we remember it as D-Day, June 6, 1944. At the time, it was codenamed Operation Overlord. The failure of the Dieppe raid in 1942 showed the Allies how hard it was going to be to attack a fortified port. So they planned an amphibious assault, a massive amphibious assault on the French beaches. The scale of Operation Overlord was immense, a combined force of over 57,000 American and 75,000 British troops, all commanded by the American general Dwight Eisenhower. Now that's a huge force, but consider by comparison that the Soviets lost more than a million men in Stalingrad. The real might of the D-Day invasion was material. Six battleships, 6,500 smaller vessels, 10,000 planes. And unlike the Russians, these soldiers had food and ammunition and warm boots. I mean, look at this picture. The Soviet general, uh, Georgi Zhukov, uh, toasting General Eisenhower at the end of the war, said, speaking of D-Day, we did not know there were so many trucks in the world. America's might was its industrial might, its economic might. Henry Ford might have been a Nazi sympathizer, but Fordism and Detroit, you know, that's how America won this war. Almost 4,500 Allied soldiers died on that first day, D-Day, which is a horrible toll, but arguably a low one. That was only about 5% casualties. Privately, Allied commanders had been prepared to accept casualties of like up to 50%. Now the Allies closed in on Germany from both directions. In August 1944, the German forces were driven out of Paris, ignoring Hitler's orders to destroy one of the world's most beautiful cities. Soon the Allies were advancing so fast they could not maintain their own supply lines. General George Patton's Third Army in the south, British Field Marshal Montgomery in the north, and from the east, Stalin's two top generals, Zhukov and Ivan Konev, literally racing each other to Berlin. The big three would meet again in February 1945, this time at Yalta, which is like a vacation resort in Crimea on the Black Sea. At the Yalta conference, now that victory against Germany was likely, it became harder for the big three to ignore 
disagreements about what the post-war world was going to look like. What should be done with Germany? Stalin wanted to exact revenge, but Churchill was reluctant to impose a crippling debt on devastated Germany, as had been done in 1919. What about the rest of Europe? Poland, the country whose invasion really started the war, was the most obvious source of tension. Britain supported the old Polish government, which was now in exile in London. But the Soviets had installed their own communist puppet government in Poland and would, still, and would soon do the same thing in Czechoslovakia and Romania and Bulgaria and Hungary. And historians still debate what happened at Yalta, the deals made there whether Roosevelt was fooled by Stalin or whether he was weak or whether he did what he had to do. And I don't want to take too strong a side on that question because if you're doing that essay topic, I want you to read the sources and make your own conclusions about this debate. One thing we can say is that uh, Roosevelt in February 1945 was not a healthy man. He was suffering from heart trouble and high blood pressure and dizzy spells. And uh, soon after returning from Yalta, he went into seclusion and on April 12th, 1945, he had a stroke and he died. Hitler, who was by now hiding in his bunker in Berlin, rejoiced at the news of Roosevelt's death, but it was probably the last good news that Hitler ever got. And on April 30th, with the Russians already in the suburbs of Berlin, Hitler killed himself and the starving boys and old men who were still defending the city surrendered to the Russians on May 2nd. On May 8th, 1945, the German high command signed a document of unconditional surrender and the war in Europe was over. Now I've been arguing that World War II cemented aerial bombing, strategic bombing as the American way of war. The consummation or culmination of that, of course, is the atomic bomb. After the victory in Europe, what they called VE Day, the war in Europe was over, but the war in the Pacific continued. With Germany and the other Axis powers defeated, nobody really believed Japan could still win, but the Japanese kept fighting with a zeal that defied surrender. And American planners anticipated losing hundreds of thousands of lives in an invasion of the Japanese home islands. At the very highest levels, American planners pinned their hopes, or some of their hopes, on a new weapon, the atomic bomb. Even before the war began, certain top physicists, especially Jewish refugees from Europe, like Leo Szilard and Albert Einstein, had begun to imagine the use of a nuclear atomic chain reaction as a weapon of war. And once the war began, they warned the US government that Germany might try to develop a new kind of super bomb. By the end of 1941, the Manhattan Project, which was a top secret project, American project, to build an atomic bomb was underway. The Manhattan Project is associated with a secret base at Los Alamos, New Mexico. That's where the physicists worked to build the bomb. But there was actually an even larger secret operation at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, one at Hanford, Washington, and other sites all over the country where workers processed uranium and plutonium to produce atomic weapons. And here again, we see the American way of war because building the bomb didn't just require scientific ingenuity. It was also just a massive industrial project. Oppenheimer said building just one bomb would require turning the whole country into a factory. And that's kind of what happened. 
So once again, the American way of war is a way of leveraging science and technology, but also just the country's massive industrial capability to aerial war. On July 16, 1945, the first atomic explosion, codenamed Trinity, uh, was detonated in the New Mexico desert, and it startled even the physicists with its destructive force. This picture is actually of a later atomic test. There's no great pictures of the Trinity test because it was, of course, super top secret. At the time of the Trinity test, the brand new president, Harry Truman, was on his way to the Potsdam Conference, the final wartime conference of the big three. And at Potsdam, Truman met Stalin and couldn't help revealing to him that the United States had developed a powerful new weapon. Stalin didn't seem surprised and his lack of surprise surprised Truman. He just said he was glad to hear it. What Truman didn't know is that Stalin knew all about the bomb, that he had known about it long before Truman, because since the fall of 1944, uh, Klaus Fuchs, a German-born scientist working on the Manhattan Project, had been passing its secrets to the Soviet Union. On August 6, 1945, uh, the American bomber, the Enola Gay, dropped a single atomic bomb, codenamed Little Boy, on the city of Hiroshima, Japan. Somewhere between 80 to 100,000 people were killed instantly, about one third of the city's population. And the final death toll from that single bomb was probably between 100 and 150,000 people, the great majority of them civilians. Five square miles of the city were completely destroyed. Three days later, the US bomber Boxcar dropped a second atomic bomb on the city of Nagasaki. This was actually a more powerful weapon, but just the shape of the terrain around Nagasaki confined the blast effects to a smaller area and maybe 80,000 people were killed. It took a while for the Japanese high command to even comprehend what had happened. But when the scope of the devastation became clear, after the scope of the devastation became clear, the Japanese foreign minister notified the allies that Japan would surrender if the emperor could remain in place. In the years to come, especially during the Cold War and under the shadow of possible nuclear war, historians and really everybody would debate the decision to use the atomic bomb against Japan. Was it necessary? Could the Japanese have been defeated without using the bomb? That question makes sense in the context of the Cold War and the fear of nuclear war. But from the point of view of 1945, it's actually a very murky question. There really wasn't a decision to use the atomic bomb. Truman never considered not using the atomic bomb. Looking back on 1945 from a Cold War perspective, the atomic bomb seemed like something new, something distinct from all previous weapons. By the 1950s and the 1960s, when the world contemplated the possibility of a nuclear war that really could wipe out all human civilization, the atomic bomb came to be seen as different in kind from all previous weapons. But from a World War II perspective, from a August 1945 perspective, the atomic bomb was the culmination of trends, of a lot of trends that were a long time coming. It was a bigger, better bomb, but it wasn't fundamentally different from other bombs. It didn't seem to demand a different moral calculus. Really, the atomic bomb seemed like the logical endpoint of an American way of war that leveraged scientific know-how and industrial might to wage a highly technological war from above. 
a war of air power, a way of fighting that did everything it could to protect the lives of US soldiers while driving enemies to unconditional surrender. If you look at the casualties of World War II, you see how successful in a way this American strategy was. 405,000 Americans lost their lives in the Second World War, and that is a huge number, but as a proportion of the population, it does not compare to the countries where the battle was fought, Soviet Union and Poland and so on. World War II is still considered the good war by most Americans and many people, a war that was fought to save democracy against truly heinous foes. And unlike just about every other American war, Americans did not suffer many doubts about the righteousness of their cause. This was a fight in which the United States were pretty unambiguously the good guys. But it can be dangerous to be the good guys in a moral, ethical sense. The end of the war would leave more questions than answers about the shape of the post-war world and America's place in the world. But those will be the topics of future lectures. Thanks very much for watching.